Hello, folks, and welcome to FS Ride Along, episode 13 of season 3, and I'm talking to Max Trescott, uh, and we're going to be talking GA flying and glass cockpits. Uh, he is a full-time flight instructor, a Cirrus Platinum CSIP instructor, and specializes in teaching in Cirrus aircraft. He also hosts uh, his own podcast, Aviation News Talk, which is currently number one in iTunes, and uh, number three in iTunes, he ho- is the co-host on the Aviation Geeks podcast. Welcome, Max. Well, thanks so much, Nicholas. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. I appreciate you slumming with number 132 in, po- in iTunes. <laughs> you know, I don't put much stock in those ratings, but um, I'm happy to happy to be here with you. All right. Well, awesome. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. How did you start the, or how did you catch the aviation bug? You know, I think it was probably one of those things where as a young man, I looked up to the sky and saw an airplane fly by and thought, hmm, that looks pretty cool. And then uh, there came a time where my mother took my sister and I to the airport and we took one of those $5 rides you know, for, for 15 minutes around town. And uh, I was hooked for sure. I'm guessing I was probably you know, 10 or 12 at that point. And by the time I was 15, mom was driving me to the airport to take flying lessons because I didn't have a driver license. Oh, wow. So you got you got your flying lessons before your driver's license. That says something. It it was kind of funny, yeah. Yeah, I I I think had I been in a different situation, I probably would have had my pilot's license before my driver's license too, or at least been taking flight lessons. Exactly, I was taking lessons. I didn't actually finish till I was nineteen. So second year in college, I finished. Yeah, but still, that's not bad. That's pretty young to have your license and be all set to go. And how far have you gone? Obviously, CFI and CFWI, but uh, did you go to ATP or any of the advanced, more advanced ratings? So, oddly, I have four ATPs. Uh, I've got uh, everything that's related to aircraft at the ATP level. So, I'm an ATP for single-engine and multi-engine land and for single-engine and multi-engine seaplane. So you really know what you're doing. I bow down to your expertise. <laughs> no, I just I just like taking check rides, that's all. <laughs> yeah, you're insane then. <laughs> that that's true too. All right. Well, uh so what uh for those that uh have kind of just you know, maybe you're a flight simmer and you know, you just uh kind of it's just occurred to you that you can actually take a flight lesson um for as little as $135 is high as that seems. That's still pretty low by today's standards. Um, what can people expect when they take that first lesson? So I think you're right. I think a lot of people don't realize that it's as easy as going down to the airport and saying, hey, I want to take a flight lesson. I mean, literally, there's no preparation required. There's nothing that you need to do in advance. There's there's no uh, you know complex vetting or application process or whatever. If you showed up at an airport uh, this afternoon and said, I want to go for a flight lesson, if there were someone available uh, to teach, they would do it right then and there on the spot. Uh, often people will schedule it you know, for the next day or something like that. But there are really two kinds of first flights. Uh, flight schools will offer what they call the demo lesson or the demo flight, and that's usually just a, a very inexpensive, uh, very quick, uh, you know, hop around the the sky to get people acquainted with flying. And then what I like to do is offer a real first lesson, and a real first lesson is going to be more expensive. It's going to take probably three hours, and I'll spend a full hour with people ahead of time 
uh, in the classroom, talking about what it is we're going to be doing, kind of walk through each of the steps. Then we'll go out and pre-flight the aircraft, which will uh, take probably about 30 minutes as I teach them you know, all the things they need to look for in the airplane before they before they uh, jump into it. And then we'll fly typically for anywhere from eh, 1.1 to 1.3 hours, so about an hour and 15 minutes. And during that time, usually uh, the person is uh, in charge of the airplane probably 95% of the time. So I think people are really shocked that on a first lesson, they are really doing the flying. And, of course, when we come back, I am really doing the landing. Yeah, yeah, that's the best part. I remember my first landing um, was in a 152, I do believe, at uh, Chico's Ranchero Airport. And I thought that was insane because... You know, the runway is just a little bit bigger than San Carlos, and I'm thinking, you know, I this is insane. I shouldn't be landing at this airport on my first try. Yeah, so, uh, you know, certainly landings are the most difficult thing, and we often don't do a lot of landings in the very first lesson, but we do pretty much everything else. Yeah, yep. Well, uh, that's, that's so cool. And I really do encourage people, uh, especially if they've been flight simming for a long time, you know, just go to your like local FBO, look them up online or, you know, just wander down to the airport, heaven forbid, and take that first lesson. It's really worth it. Just don't pretend that you know everything before you actually do it because flying a real airplane is very different from the simulator. Well, and I think simulators probably have uh, an advantage because aren't you looking at sectional charts so you're already aware of where the local airport is close to you? Uh, it really depends on kind of how, what what level people are at. Um, I'd say most people are really familiar with IFR procedures, not as strong with VFR because if you really think about it, when you, when you're in a simulator, you're looking at the instruments, you know, right. the scenery isn't going to be as good outside. So, I mean, you might be able to read a JEP chart, but you look at a sec- sectional and you're going to go, what the hell is this? You know, there's a strange difference there. So, I mean, we, we kind of have it backwards going into it. That would be the best. That, that was my experience anyway. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are just unaware of where the general aviation airport is that's closest to them. Most people are familiar with commercial airports, and there are probably about 600 of those in the country, probably fewer that actually have airline service. But then you've got another 6,000 airports, where you, most of where you can go to take a flight lessons. So I think uh, going to skyvector.com is a, a really good place just to look at a sectional map and you know go ahead and center it on your uh, home location, and then it's very quick and easy to see where are the general aviation airports located. Yeah, that's a good tip, and you know it's good to go to Sky Vector anyway just to play around. Um, I have a lot of fun with that, and I'm sure other people would as well. So good recommendation. Thank you, Max. Um, so as far as ratings go, there are really two basic options in the U.S. anyway, a uh, private pilot's license and a sport pilot's license. Um, what are involved in the two uh, licenses, or I should say certificates, uh, and what do they allow you to do? So the sport pilot is the simpler of the two, and it is limited in the sense that you can only fly an aircraft that can carry two people that's in the light sport category, which just means it's under, I don't remember the exact weight, but it's around 1,320 pounds, and it can't be faster than 120 knots. So it limits um, you know, the kind of airplane you can fly. Uh, you're also limited uh, to not flying at night, 
you can't fly in class, class Bravo, which would be around you know the 30 largest airports in the country. Uh, though you can actually do those two things, night and class Bravo, with subsequent endorsements after you get your license. The sport pilot license uh, requirements have a, are, are for a minimum of 20 hours of flight instruction. Uh, frankly, I would be shocked if uh, many people get their license after 20 hours. That's that's really a uh, pretty bare bare bones minimum. The uh, private, by contrast, the, um, the the regulatory requirement is a minimum of 40 hours of uh, flight experience. And again, most people don't get it anywhere close to the the 40 hours. I would say that um, in rural areas, you probably can get uh, you know closer to that. You might get your license and. You know, 50 hours or 55. And in large metro areas like where I am here near San Francisco, I would say the average is probably closer to 75 to 80 hours, simply because the airspace we're in is much more complicated. There's much more that uh, pilots need to know to navigate this airspace. Uh, And because when we take off, we're going to initially fly probably 15 minutes just to get to a place where we can practice the maneuvers. Uh, Where I grew up in northern Pennsylvania at the uh, Grand Canyon Airport in Wellsboro, so the moment we took off, we could start maneuvers immediately because we were probably the only uh, small airplane within 30 miles. Yeah, yeah, that must be a nice benefit to have when you're out in the sticks. Chico isn't so much in the sticks. I'm sure you're probably familiar, but, um, you know, we can fly maybe maybe five minutes out of the airport. Once you get outside of the Class D, you can, you know, be in a practice area and feel confident. And, you know, San Francisco, yeah, it would take 15 or 20 minutes to get out of there. Um, Palo Alto, I'm sure, isn't as interesting as San Carlos, but, I mean, you're so close to the, you know, you're, under the Class B, and then on top of that, you're close to the airport itself, San Francisco International Airport, and then Oakland on the other side of the bay. So that's interesting airspace. I'd like to do a bay tour with you someday and really experience that airspace. Oh, come on down. Uh, it is takes about an hour to uh, go over the, the, the dozen sites. It's really a lot of fun. I think you can see more in one hour over the San Francisco Bay Area than just about any other city where you might uh, might fly. We've just got so many things to see. And, and our access is amazingly good. I thought that after 9-11, they would probably keep us from flying right next to San Francisco International Airport or prevent us from flying next to the Golden Gate Bridge. All that stuff is still possible. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's very cool. Very cool. That's one of some of my favorite airspace too. As I'm even in the sim, I don't fly GA as much as I should. But uh, you know, flying in and out of San Carlos or Palo Alto, very fun. And you're based out of Palo Alto, correct? That's where I do most of my instruction. I have some clients at some other neighboring airports, but for people who are renting, most of that that work is going to be at Palo Alto. And I teach at uh, the West Valley Flying Club, which has, I believe, last I counted, 48 aircraft for rent. So that makes it, uh, uh, I think, the second largest flying club in the country. So it's pretty unique. We have uh, a lot of glass uh, cockpit aircraft. In fact, uh, I recently heard that uh, we've passed the 50% mark. So over half of those 48 aircraft have uh, glass cockpits, which is pretty unique. Most parts of the country, you would still have uh, a lot of the older round-gauge airplanes and not nearly as many as the glass cockpit aircraft that I specialize in. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I'm glad you moved on to that. Um, I All the flying I've done, and I have, you know, maybe five hours of instruction, something like that, has all been in steam gauges. Um, and I'm, you know, pretty familiar with steam gauges. I've been exposed relatively well with the airliners uh to glass cockpits um in the sim and I've, there's been a 
you know, there's poor representation of glass cockpits in uh, the sim as well. But when you when you're talking about the real real thing, what are some of the advantages that glass cockpits can offer you? Uh, I'm guessing most of your listeners probably know the glass cockpit would be if we have uh, computer displays in place of the round gauges that uh, traditionally we had in the aircraft. And people will call them round gauge airplanes, steam gauge airplanes. It's all the same thing. It's any any aircraft built prior to about uh, 2004 that's got uh, the older uh, round style uh, gauges in them. I would say that um, you know some of the biggest benefits are both position and situational awareness. So with the large moving maps, it's pretty hard to not know where you are. <laughs> you know, in, in days gone by, uh, people did get lost occasionally, and you'd hear stories about that. Uh, but with a moving map, yeah, unless you don't know how to use it, it's almost impossible to uh, to get lost. So that, that gives you a lot of information about your position. And then in terms of your, your situation, we have uh, terrain displays, so we can at any point in time tell exactly uh, how many feet we are above the ground. And we can also uh, look at the moving map and configure it to display uh, surrounding terrain in colors that represent the height of the ter- terrain as compared to our current altitude. So, for example, if I'm flying at 4,000 feet, uh, any terrain that's higher than 4,000 feet is going to show up in red. Uh, any terrain that's going to be as little as uh, 100 feet below me to as much as 1,000 feet below me is going to show up in yellow. And then the rest of it is you know, no color. So it's pretty easy to just kind of fly through the black areas and know, hey, I'm at least 1,000 feet above the terrain. And so that has greatly reduced the number of controlled flight into terrain accidents for glass cockpit aircraft because unless you don't have it turned on uh, or don't know how to use it, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to, to not know where the, uh, where the mountains are. And that's really important at night. We've had uh, a number of night accidents here in the Bay Area. Uh, by, by the way, the, the night accident rate in the San Francisco Bay Area is significantly higher than in the rest of the country simply because we have this dangerous mix of mountains and fog. And when you combine those two, you know, it gets really dangerous, especially at night. If you don't have a moon and you can't see where the hills are, uh, you know, it can be very, very dangerous for, for people to fly unless they know exactly where they are and how high the, the mountains are. But with a glass cockpit, you have all that information. Uh, so even if you're in the clouds, you can see you know, how high are the mountains you know, on the other side of that uh, cloud. Uh, other kinds of position, uh, pardon me, situational information we're going to have, uh, we have uh, pretty good traffic displays. So we're uh, constantly aware of other aircraft that uh, are around us how high they are relative to us, whether they're getting closer or farther away. Some aircraft also have uh, weather uh, data, which uh, comes up to the uh, the cockpit via satellite. Uh, well, and some of it actually comes up from the ground through uh, the FAA's ADSB. So it's really amazing if you compare what's available to us in a glass cockpit compared to what was available in round gauges just 10 years ago. It's day and night. I mean, there, there are just so many tools that really enhance safety, but it also uh, increases the requirements for people to learn and know how to use the tool. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a double-edged, a double-edged sword. We've we've got lots of information, but you've got to be better trained to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah, and that's probably why you're why you're seeing numbers like seventy or eighty hours to get your PPL if you're training in in glass cockpits. I I would imagine it would be slightly lower if you're training in steam gauges but like you said you know you really get a better overall view of your situation uh and your situational awareness improves with a glass cockpit so 
I, I definitely see the advantages. It's just kind of really for me as I'm looking at prices and whatnot for flight training. Um, here in the, my lo- local area, there's only steam gauges like there is in most of the country. But I mean, if I wanted to take a flight lesson in the Bay Area, um, you know, the price is going to be significantly more if it's a glass cockpit versus if it's not. But, you know, I think it's probably worth it, especially in somewhere like the Bay Area where you have so much traffic, um, to have that glass cockpit so you have the traffic awareness, if nothing else. So the premium right now for glass versus non-glass at Palo Alto runs around $15 an hour probably. Now, the... uh the base price for a round gauge airplane is probably significantly higher than what you're going to be paying in Chico and, and elsewhere. So if you're comparing the cost of uh, a round gauge airplane in Chico with a glass cockpit in Palo Alto, yeah, there probably is a significant difference. Yeah, I, I think uh, last time I checked, 135 was the rent rate, including the instructor, and you're probably talking, what, uh, maybe $200 an hour down there? Oh, okay, and you're probably talking for a 152, I'm guessing? Uh, 172 in my case. Really? Wow. That's a great rate. Uh, in our case, yes, you're going to be looking at the, the $200 ballpark for, for something comparable. Yeah, yeah, which is, uh, you know, that's just market value. But, I mean, either way, it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. Um, so, let's see. Um, what are some uh, current issues going on in the GA arena that you've kind of been talking about on uh, your aviation news podcast? I think the single biggest issue that faces uh, general aviation is uh, privatization or proposed privatization of air traffic control. This is an issue that comes up regularly every uh, probably eight years or so. And the, the concept is that uh, some people believe that we would be better off if we were to take air traffic control from the FAA and spin it off into a separate private corporation, and that corporation would then be responsible for managing air traffic control in the United States. Now, the structure of that corporation kind of varies from uh, time to time when it gets proposed by different administrations. The latest proposal that was proposed last year in the House of Representatives uh, was that there would be um, a, a private uh, corporation that would have, uh, I believe, 15 seats on their board of governors, uh, most of which would be uh, seats assigned to uh, the airlines. There would be uh, three seats uh, for general aviation. And the general belief is that the airlines are pushing really, really, really hard to this because they would like to be in charge of how air traffic control is funded and how it is built out to different uh, users. Right now, uh, the FAA collects fees through uh, basically a tax on fuel. And so airlines uh, obviously burn lots of gas, and so they pay significantly higher uh, total amounts of money to fund the FAA and air traffic control. GA, GA aircraft, on the other hand, burn very little fuel, uh, and so they pay much less in taxes. Now, I think the airline argument is that even though they're burning lots of gas and paying lots of money, the ATC doesn't spend that much more time talking with them than they spend talking with a general aviation aircraft 
flying exactly the same route. So their argument would be, while we're talking on the radio the same amount of time, so a GA airplane should pay just as much for services as uh, United Airlines. And if we have our own private uh, corporation, we can change the structure of how it's funded and we can uh, increase the, uh, the cost to general aviation and shift some of those costs away from the airlines. So that's, I think, the primary driver uh, behind privatization. It's an airline attempt to, to grab control and to shift some of their costs to, to other users. Uh, but you're not going to hear it couched in that way. They'll use virtually every other argument about, oh, why this is good and why it should be done. But the bottom line, it's a money issue. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair assessment of the situation. And uh, if you're interested in aviation at all, um, I would advise you to research the topic a little, mo- little bit more and then maybe call your uh, uh, representatives and voice your opinion on the matter, uh, hopefully against, but uh, for as well, if that's your persuasion. Um, and uh, something else I wanted to ask about while we're still uh, talking GA um, I know that the accident rate, generally speaking, is pretty high. Um, training in something like a Cirrus, of course, you have caps to help you out. Um, but I think the most dangerous phase of flight, as far as I know, is the base to final turn. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about safety and that infamous turn as well? Sure. Let's uh, talk first about caps, which is the parachute, which uh, Cirrus, uh, all Cirrus aircraft are now equipped with, and that has uh, helped lower the uh, the accident rate and the fatality rate uh, among Cirrus aircraft. If you go back um, when Cirrus first came out back in 1999, they actually had a fatal accident rate that was higher than the rest of uh, general aviation as a whole. In the last three, four years, there's been a, a huge reversal as there's been more focus on training uh, to use the parachute. And now the Cirrus accident rate, the fatal accident rate, is somewhere around half of that for the rest of general aviation. So there's been a, a really big change, and these aircraft are incredibly uh, safe compared to uh, regular uh, planes in the general aviation fleet. Uh, if you look at safety, the current accident rate, the current fatal accident rate, is around 1.2 fatal accidents per 100,000 hours flown. Uh, so just by comparison, you know, I've flown 8,000 hours over uh, you know, 40 years, most of that, the vast majority of that in the last 15 years since I became a, a flight instructor. And so I'd have to you know, fly another 12 times as much uh, to get up to 100,000 hours where statistically I might be looking at my first uh, fatal accident. So the actual uh, fatal accident rate, pretty darn low. Uh, however, it doesn't really seem that way to the general public because every single aircraft accident gets reported uh, on the 10 o'clock news and the newspapers. You know, Everywhere you look, it's, oh, my God, another airplane crashed. Uh, by contrast, I think somewhere around 35,000 people die in cars every year, and you never hear about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. Kind of- that's kind of accepted, you know, and that doesn't uh, obviously show up on the news. So I think the the general perception among the public as to what the accident rate is is much worse than it, than it really is. Um, and so to me, uh, managing the accident rate is really all about risk management. So before I take a flight, I like to stop and think about what are the unique risks that I face today on this particular flight. And generally, I'll find that uh, whatever risk factor I think is the the biggest for that particular flight is going to be different from you know day to day. Uh, some days our biggest risk might be you know weather. 
Uh, another day it might be uh, less fa- familiarity with a particular aircraft. Another day it might be that I'm fatigued and, uh, you know, have to really be alert when I'm flying. Uh, and it just goes on and on. Uh, some days it's as simple as I'm going to a different airport and maybe I'm not familiar with their noise abatement uh, procedures there. Well, that's that's not going to kill me but uh, you know, if I violate it. But on the other hand, I try to be a good neighbor when I fly and make sure that uh, you know we fly in a way that the local airports would like us to, to minimize noise over the sensitive neighborhoods uh, close to that uh, particular airport. And then if you look at the accidents as a whole, somewhere between 80 and 85% of them are attributable to uh, pilot error, which means if you can successfully make good uh, judgments you know, every time you fly and your skills are good, you can pretty much eliminate 85% of the uh, the accidents. So then we're down to the, the last 15%, which would be, you know, things that are either mechanical in nature, uh, you know, things of, things of that nature. Uh, and then in terms of where you're most likely to, um, you know, encounter an accident, the NTSB uh, breaks it down into different phases of flight. So how many accidents happen uh, during takeoff, how many happen during climb, what happens during cruise, what happens on approach, which would be as you're descending down from cruise to, to pattern altitude, and then what happens uh, during the, the landing. And as you would expect, the, the takeoffs and the landings have the highest percentage of uh, uh, you know accidents. And actually, the approach, the part where you're descending, also has a significant percentage of landings. The climb... The crews, those are relatively safe. Not a whole lot, uh, you know, happens at, at those particular uh, points. And then you were asking about, uh, you know, based, uh, you know, final turns. Uh, I would, I would kind of throw that in with um, kind of a whole category of accidents that uh, the NTSB refers to as maneuvering accidents. And so that those would be uh, any accidents that happen relatively close to the ground where the pilot. Uh, you know, loses control or fails to maintain, uh, you know, control of the aircraft. And sure, uh, the whole way around the pattern, you could end up with a maneuvering accident. Another maneuvering accident would be uh, uh, some pilot who decided, oh, I think I'll go, uh, you know, buzz those cows in that field down there. You know, that's right. that's, that's also going to be an accident that occurred because they were down close to the ground and they failed to control the, uh, the aircraft uh, properly. So in general, uh, AOPA and NTSB have said that uh, maneuvering is one of the largest, if not the largest, class of uh, accidents in this country. Wow, wow. So very important to, uh, if you're going to take flying lessons, really pay attention and practice, practice, practice. Um, and I'd say, you know, when you're when you're getting your private, um, don't spend so much time practicing in the sim. Do it in the real airplane. And then when you're getting your instrument ticket, then you can pra- start practicing in the sim because that's what it's all about. But uh, hey, let's, let's talk about that transition. So uh, I've flown with a number of folks who have spent a lot of time in sim and then uh, come into the, uh, the aircraft. What I have found is, uh, you know, for those folks, the biggest challenge uh, other instructors and I have is getting those people to look out the window. Yeah, <laughs> I'm guilty of that. Very guilty of that. Yes, because people are so used to, to looking at the instruments uh, in the simulator. They come into the airplane and they uh, have already trained themselves that, oh, yeah, I'm going to fly this airplane by looking at the instruments. When really for VFR uh, flying, 
what we do is we try and get people to look outside the airplane because it turns out to be much, much easier to fly an airplane by looking out the window than it is by staring at the instrument. So literally, you should be looking outside about 90% of the time when you are you know, learning to fly as a, uh, you know, a VFR private going for your, you know, for a VFR pilot going for your private or sport pilot's license. And there are times when I actually will uh, cover up the instruments. I'll say, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, if I can't get you to look outside, I'm going to give you less to look at inside the aircraft. And, you know, people eventually kind of transition to, to looking outside and it makes their flying better instantly. Plus it's a lot better to look outside. You get to see stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's true, especially stuff that uh, you know could hurt you. I was out flying uh, today, and the clouds were low, probably around eh, 2,000 feet or a little bit lower. And darn if all the birds weren't down there with us at the same altitude. So we were we were constantly uh, you know making uh, moves to avoid the seagulls. Oh dear, don't want a bird strike. That's not good. Um, so speaking on the sim talk topic, do you have any flight sim experience yourself? So. I have not used um, kind of the co- conventional sims that you might run on a, a home computer. I do a f- substantial amount of work with sims that you would find at uh, flight schools, uh, and so yeah, so I, I teach in those. But no, I don't. I don't run anything at home. Okay, I was just curious. Um, as a community, um, you know, having instructed a fair amount of simmers, uh, what would you like to see simmers and some developers do um, to improve their skills and then to promote GA in general? Well, so I think you you raised a a point earlier, which is that uh, the glass cockpit representations that you find in uh, sims that you might use at home are often pretty limited. Uh, I remember seeing some for the G1000, and, you know, there were just many buttons and features that were not implemented probably because of the low resolution available on the screen and the tiny buttons and you know things like that so i think if uh, you know manufacturers uh, you know who are building the films could give a little bit more detail on some of the glass cockpits that would uh, probably be helpful and then probably we need a, a button on those sims where uh, you know you simulate taking your first flight lesson and you push that button and you don't see the instruments you're just looking outside yeah, that would be that would be a good button to have. Uh, well, I encourage you to uh, give uh, Flight Sim a shot. It's um, about twenty five bucks. Well, fifty bucks if you get a controller. Um, so about you know fifty bucks to get started, and it's it's kind of fun. You get to see uh, a little bit of our world. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, um, uh, how do you think uh, simmers and real world pilots can improve the way they relate to each other? That's a good question. Um, why don't you tell me how you think they relate, and then you know I can give you my perspective. Um, well, I have found a lot of respect from real-world pilots in my experience, um, but I think there's kind of this gap between, you know, I might describe, oh, here I was, you know, shooting the, I don't know, the Hawks 5 into Seattle, and, you know, this was what happened. I was high, so I deployed the spoilers, and then I did this and this and this, and, you know, we can almost describe it as a real-world experience, and there's kind of this disconnect between, you know, us and somebody that might be a real pilot saying, yeah, you haven't flown a 737, you haven't flown the Hawks 5. I, I think that's kind of where the communication breaks down because we can't relate the experiences entirely. 
Well, that's probably true for just about every walk of life for for anything. Unless you've walked in somebody else's shoes, it's you know, hard to truly understand what the you know the world looks like from from their perspective. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure there are pilots who um, you know fly large airplanes, you know, seven thirty sevens and and so on, who you know think that folks who haven't done exactly what they're doing, you know, couldn't possibly understand you know what that's like. And I, I don't think that's true. I, I think that uh, you know we may not know everything about what. You know that's like, but certainly you can uh, learn about that experience through through sims and other ways, and have some appreciation for for what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that perspective. Um, given that we have a chance to kind of uh, do a, uh, I don't know, a diplomatic exchange here between real world and sim. Uh, do you have any questions for me as a sim pilot? Oh boy, um... <laughs> probably tons. I. I... <laughs> I, I hadn't really given that a whole lot of thought. So uh, let, let me ask you, how much how much time do you spend a day or a week, uh, you know, flying the Sims? Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty hours, but I'm not usual in that sense. Fifty hours a week? Yeah, about fifty hours a week. Wow. When do you sleep? Uh, not very often. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and so I'm so- crew rest. <laughs> <laughs> crew rest that's good you know i was listening to one of uh, your recent shows and you were uh talking about how the uh you know people would get tired of a particular sim after uh you know 30 hours of playing it and the importance for allowing uh modifications and add-ons and things like that so i gather that that's your experience if you've flown the same the same 737 for 30 or 40 hours you're, you're ready to move on and do something different well you know maybe not if i'm flying a complicated jet or a complicated uh, simulation of a GA aircraft. There's some really good versions of 172s and some other aircraft out there, for example. Um, you know, it might, you know, probably at the 150 to 200 hour level, I'm ready for a new challenge. But, you know, I, in that context, I was talking about a new simulator, um, which has, you know, somewhat limited con- content. You can... Um, you know, you can go up and cruise around in your GA aircraft, but the features aren't very advanced. It's not going to keep you engaged for very long. Whereas if you have add-ons available, you're going to have a lot more, you a lot more to explore. You can fly anything from, you know, 152 to a J3 or a, you know, even a A380. So, I mean, it, the I, I think the dynamics of the experience and the magic of a simulator is you get to experience all kinds of aviation where, you know, if you're a real-life pilot, it's going to be a lot harder to go even from a 172 to a 152 or an SR-20 to a SR-22. I mean, you know, the, the, the knowledge gap in the real world is a lot larger than the knowledge gap needed in the simulated world. I think that's probably the biggest advantage that simulators, simulator pilots have. Hmm. So when you say knowledge gap, are you saying in essence that it's easier to jump from one plane to another in the sim than it would be in the flying real aircraft? Absolutely. I mean, I, I can be flying a 747 one day and a 737 the next, and, you know, it's not... It's not impossible to make that transition, um, whereas, you know, if you look at an airline pilot, um, you know, you have only one, one type rating at a time, so you can't, you can't make that same jump. 
Well, and to get that type rating, they have spent, uh, you know, in some cases six weeks because they need, they need to know every single system in the aircraft. And, you know, that's the nice thing about, you know, being in the sim. You, you certainly know which controls to, uh, to operate, but you probably don't know, you know, the full detail on all the, the systems and, you know, all the failure modes and all the backups to the backups to the backups. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say most people, you know, if they're really studious, they'll get uh, one of those cockpit videos and maybe spend three hours studying the airplane and, you know, three hours versus six weeks, plus all your, you know, private instrument, commercial, CFI, CFII, um, all those ratings. There's a big, big, huge knowledge gap between a simulator pilot and the real world guys, obviously. Well, the interesting contrast you know, from the other direction is if you're flying 50 hours a week in a sim, you're actually flying more hours than an airline pilot. Is yeah, flying. yeah, I know. Well, like I said, I'm not, I'm not normal. I've got some other things going on in my life that allow me to do that. But uh, yeah, I do fly, tend to fly more than the real world guys can legally do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. You know, if you fall asleep at the controls, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to kill 100 people in the back seat. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, there's always the pause button and there's always, you know, escape if you completely, uh, if you completely mess up, whereas you don't have that, that option in real life. So inter- now, interesting differences and, yeah. and fun to talk about. So we have a pause button too, but unfortunately it's just in the flight school simulator. It's not in the actual, <laughs> it's not in the actual aircraft. And I find that, uh, you know, here's, here's an interesting, uh, kind of comparison. Uh, the vast majority of training that I do for people is in airplanes. And even though we have simulators, it's funny how people are not as interested in flying those. Uh, however, what I have noticed is that when we are flying in the simulator at the flight school, when I hit the pause button and a person turns toward me, I can see that they're very actively listening to everything I'm saying. They're processing it. And I believe they're actually learning, uh, you know, better than if we were in the airplane where we've got a very noisy environment. Uh, fully 50% of all their brain cycles are dedicated to keeping the wings level because they want to live. You know, they, they have this, they have this, uh, underlying fear that, you know, if I pay too much attention, you know, listening and not enough time, uh, you know, actually flying, I could, could get in trouble. So the sim environments are actually really outstanding for training, uh, because we do have the pause button. We can stop and we can kind of, uh, talk about what just happened. You know, the airplane, we don't really have quite the same luxury. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a lot of, um, a lot of interesting differences and I, I think you bring it, bring up a good point um professional level simulators and to some extent uh you know maybe if you brought your cfi over and said hey i'll I'll pay you 50 bucks if you spend a couple hours in my home simulator with me here's what i want to work on um that might give you a good chance to learn outside of the the environment that you have up in the air which might be a good tool for both the cfi and yourself well, the interesting thing about simulators is it really gives uh, people the opportunity to practice things that wouldn't be safe to practice in the real airplane. So, for example, you could set it up to uh, simulate uh, wind shear or just set up uh, simulate icing or system failures and, and things like that. But I'm I'm guessing a lot of people – you know, that's not the fun stuff. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of work. And so I'm guessing people don't spend as much time, you know, doing that. Now, I know that there's one airline uh, which actually requires their crew 
while taxing out to take off to review at least one emergency. So I, I think that's a really good technique for pilots who are flying, you know, other, uh, you know, big aircraft to spend that otherwise dead time reviewing emergencies. So yeah, I, I think that's uh, an area that just doesn't get enough you know, emphasis, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with us, Max. Uh, a couple more questions. Um, I know you have a lot of resources, um, both obviously uh, your podcasts um, as well as uh, G1000.com, but what are uh, all, all the resources that you've developed for aspiring uh, pil- uh, pilots out there? Well, so in 2008, I was the name of the National uh, CFI of the Year, and uh, it was not because I was the best CFI. It was really just because, you know, they they figured I could help uh, represent all of the the 96,000 uh, CFIs uh, in the country, and I I took that as an opportunity to figure out what can I do to to kind of give back a little bit. So I created a a Learn to Fly ebook. Uh, basically, it uh, took all the the many questions that uh, aspiring pilots were always asking me, put it uh, you know in one source where people could just essentially read it, kind of figure out, oh, okay, here's step one and two and three, and here's the other things that uh, you need to consider. So anybody who's lo- interested in the Learn to Fly ebook, they can just go out to my maxtruscott.com uh, website, which is a uh, blog. And off on the right-hand side, you'll see a, a picture of a, a Cirrus. Now, oddly, some people may say, what? Learn to fly in a Cirrus? Believe it or not, I've taught a number of people to fly from scratch uh, in a Cirrus. Usually it's people who've decided that that's the aircraft that they want to own. And so if that's going to be your you know, your chosen aircraft, it makes sense to train in it so you've got all your hours in it as opposed to relatively few of your hours uh, in it. And then... Uh, Probably what put me on the map was uh, the book that I wrote back in uh, 2006, which was uh, Max Truscott's G1000 and Perspective Glass Cockpit Handbook. And I put that together because I had just been to the Cessna factory to learn the G1000 for the first time. It was relatively a new system. And I was in about four days' worth of classes, took lots of notes, came back, and was kind of rolling around in my head thinking, why does this seem so hard? <laughs> I remember thinking, correctly or not, gee, I'm a relatively smart guy. Why is this so hard? And I, what I finally concluded was that the documentation was just you know, not as good as it, it could be. And I had 20 pages of notes sitting here, and finally I thought, oh, darn, someone has to, <laughs> someone has to write a good book that explains this better than some of the resources that are, that are out there now. So I cranked out my first draft in two months and spent the next two months editing and then the next uh, three months just uh, going through the whole uh, production process. And, I, and I'm self-published. I did look at whether or not to use a publisher for it, but ultimately decided that if you can easily target your audience and you know how to, to reach them, which is pretty easy in the aviation world, World, that yeah, it's probably just a, a better deal financially to just publish the book uh, yourself. And when I was at Hewlett Packard years ago, I was actually at one point in time in charge of uh, you know, some printing of different kinds of things. So I had some experience in that area, and that helped. That helped a little bit. Cool, cool. Well, uh, like we said, uh, g1000.com. Uh, search your uh, iTunes directory for aviation geeks. App Geeks podcast, as well as uh, Aviation News podcast. Any other links where people can find you? 
Yeah, so aviationnewstalk.com uh, would be the uh, the best way to find me. And then I do have some online courses available at pilotlearning.com, and you can also get to those through the uh, aviationnewstalk.com website. So, yes, uh, these days I put out Aviation News Talk about uh, once a week and then occasionally put out some bonus episodes. This week there was an episode on uh, my review of the Cirrus uh, SF-50 uh, Vision Jet, which I spent some time in back in Knoxville uh, last week. So that was great fun to put out uh, an extra episode. Yeah, I just listened to most of that episode. Great episode, and now I want uh, a simulated version of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why not? Yeah, exactly. Why not? Well, hopefully uh, we've established a good relationship here between GA pilots and simulator pilots. Um, and thank you so much for your time, Max, and uh, hopefully you'll come back on the show someday soon. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right. My thanks to Max and uh, certainly enjoyed the interview and hopefully uh, he got a a lot out of it and enjoyed it. Um, I know he certainly did and I'm sure a lot of you guys out there will as well. Um, AirplaneGeeks.com is the podcast that he co-hosts and uh, Aviation News. uh, Search for both of those on iTunes and I'll have all the links on the show notes uh, if you go to knickknackjack.com uh, wordpress.com. And until next time, stay safe, stay sane, happy landings. Bye. So catch me if you can. I'm on the boss, my hat pulled down with a bottle in my bag. I'm on the boat against the rail with the wind against my back. I'm on the road, the open road with my Mouth drenched from my hand So catch me